Hey guys, what's up? Welcome back to another episode of the Orthodox Squad. We've got uh, Milos finally back from Serbia. And uh, sorry, I think he was in... Where were you, Milos? you want to tell the, the crew where you were? Well, first of all, I was in uh, Greece, in Athens to be exact, because I really wanted to visit the monastery of St. Nectarius on the island of Egina. And then I went uh, back to Serbia for some weddings and all other festivals and... I visited a bunch of monasteries and churches and on a, on the shorts list you can find some of the travels on the others yes. you will be seeing soon. Uh, we're also joined again by Craig for this season and uh, Craig do you want to introduce yourself again for those of us that haven't watched anything previously what do you do? Yeah for, the, yeah. Uh, for those unaware in the last show I was made an honorary member of the orthodox squad <laughs> indeed <laughs> so so that that is my uh that's my chief qualification here um otherwise other than being honorary member orthodox squad i uh am an orthodox apologist i'd like to say i'm a recreational historian i uh, i dabbled doing peer-reviewed research and um, on issues of church history i've done some stuff in the history of philosophy but I'm, ha I'm far from like a brainiac that knows everything. I just like to share what I do know and to defend the Orthodox Christian faith as much as I'm able. Amen. Um, today we're all here because we're going to talk about uh, specifically the topic of indulgences, but not as you know it. We're going to be looking at it from an Orthodox perspective. So just to kick start off, we're going to go straight into it. Craig, can you provide us with a brief overview of what indulgences are and the historical context in the Orthodox tradition? Now, the word indulgence is tough because it's such a loaded term. It has a lot of cultural import in um, the English language and really just in the West. It's the whole history of the West. The whole Protestant Reformation came from Roman Catholic indulgences and arguably the whole modern western mind came from <laughs> indulgences from the roman catholics in that sense so it's very hard to talk about this issue because of just the sort of role it plays in history and it's not the same thing in orthodoxy so maybe in very few words i'll say here's what orthodox indulgences are and i'm basing the definition on what they were defined in councils um in constantinople 1727 and i think 1838 so this conciliar definitions on orthodox indulgences and in short they're absolution certificates it's the capacity to get a penance from a spiritual father but if your local bishop has excommunicated you you get absolution from the patriarch or in the event that your local patriarchs have excommunicated you from the patriarch of jerusalem and so at least you're entered into communion with someone within the Orthodox communion. And I'll just leave it there because it's probably not what people thought it would be. And they'd be like, well, what's that? So it's a, uh, it's a very specific sort of thing. Other than the wild card is in the Russian tradition, Orthodox indulgences exist to this day, but they're free. And they're not written on paper. They're read at every funeral. If you go to a... Uh, and I'm going to guess the Serbs have it because it's just, you know, it's what's in the service books. But I know, like, I'm Russian Orthodox. In the Russian Orthodox tradition, mm -hmm. you go to a funeral, the priest says, my power given to me as a priest to bind and loose sins, so, you know, may all your sins be loose, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
those, those prayers are from the Orthodox Russian indulgence. It wasn't from the original indulgences. Like uh, we have one from Patriarch Dositheus II of Jerusalem. So like that prayer is not there, but in the Russian tradition, they started taking those Jerusalem indulgences and putting them in people's dead hands. Like they could present them to St. Peter on their way to heaven. And they started adding um, a prayer, which was the prayer that's now read at every uh, Russian Orthodox uh, funeral. And maybe just to sum it up, because of the confusion of what indulgence means to people, St. Philaret of Moscow was kind of disturbed. Like, what's this thing that people are calling indulgences? So he, he asked um, priests to give an account. What are these things? And they essentially said, they're just prayers. They're, they're not what you think they are. They're just prayers. And that's probably a pretty good definition not to be dismissive, but they're essentially just prayers um, for the dead and for the living. There's these documents that essentially show that you're in communion with a foreign patriarch. And as we unpack this, we'll see this is important because back then you could get excommunicated for not paying your taxes, like sort of like pre-modern stuff that was going on in the Ottoman Empire. So it's when it comes up in Roman Catholic apologetics, it's almost like, you say we're wrong for indulgences, but you had them too. But no, we didn't. We had something called indulgences, just like the Roman Catholics have something called indulgences. And neither of these are what St. Cyprian called indulgences, by the way. So it's everyone using the same word for something that's very different. And uh, recently um, I had my film, Errors of the Catholics. It's a documentary. And one of the chapters is on Roman Catholic indulgences. And and that's the only response people have. Well, you have them too, but no, I want to clear the air here. We do not have Roman Catholic indulgences, never had. It's a very different thing. Yeah, because that was going to be my follow-up question. Like when you say indulgence, I'm sure that everyone's thinking, you know, you pay money so you don't go to hell or purgatory, you get time off. Um, and obviously we can all see, um, we all we all have heard about it and we have our baggage that comes from our Western upbringing and our Western roots. Uh, Milos, what did you think when you heard that word, indulgence? What came to your mind? First, when we discussed the topic indulgences, because my English is so bad, I had to look it up. <laughs> and what, what definition <laughs> did you get? And after I well, got more familiar with that, I was like, oh, so it's all about that. And then I looked uh, for the first time at the Roman Catholic view because I wasn't familiar with that. And then immediately after that, I was like, okay, this doesn't make sense at all. Then I looked, okay, what are, like uh, Craig already mentioned, what are indulgences in the Christian Orthodox view? He already mentioned they are just prayers and what also happened during the Ottoman times. So it was like, ah, so basic life, uh, what uh, I just experienced in, in life, for example, when my the first and only death in my life that I remember was uh, when my uh, great grandma reposed, and we did uh, with the uh, the priest did with the prayers, and uh, I watched the other ones do the prayers for the dead, and everything learning about that. I was very small, so it was a frightening situation for me. For the first time, experiencing uh, those sort of circumstances. And also reading up on everything again and remembering how it was a child. And with my knowledge of today and also remembering death, it uh, 
it's a bit it sounds a bit weird but it was like every time i read about those topics it, it gives me some kind of inner peace because in the end we know this is not the end and life continues so those are always my first thoughts now because i'm not familiar with the word <laughs> Well, you know, look, I just the baseline search of indulgences on Google Britannica. I'll read out what it says. Indulgences were the commutation of money uh, of for part for remission of part for temporal penalty due for sin. So straight away it brings money into the equation. And that's not to straw man anyone, because I'm sure that the Roman Catholic position doesn't always have to just mean money. But the fact remains that when you say indulgences, it now means for everyone. Uh, the notion that you pay money so you get your sins removed now we've established that we differ in that regard and let's just focus on ourselves at the moment how what is the biblical basis for indulgences and is there one or is it an extra biblical thing that we get through patristics and uh kind of uh councils great well this is a huge question and it's answered three different ways according to which indulgence we're speaking of but I think I can answer it very succinctly. Um, biblically, the indulgences in the early church were a request from behalf of uh, martyrs that, you know, before they were killed, so they would have been confessors at the time, or just present day confessors would say, I know this guy, yes, he apostatized, but he's a guy, he had this, that reason, go easy on his penance. And the bishop would get that in writing and he would indulge their quest. That's where the word indulgence comes from. So essentially, it's getting someone vouching for you with a letter of recommendation. We actually have a, a church canon on it and of the Council of Arles, so I have it right. So it's not actually part of our canonical tradition, but it's part of the patristic tradition. And so these were common, but they went away when persecution went away, right? There, you didn't need people to indulge a request. Now, the they had other reasons for doing it. Tertullian makes mention that people would ask the, the confessors to vouch for them for things like adultery and whatnot. So like essentially anyone could vouch for you. And so being that we know from the scriptures, because the answer is where is this in the scriptures, like James chapter five, where the confessor sins to one another and the elders or pres, uh, presbyters or priest, depends what your translation would be, uh, would, forgive sins. And so, and really God forgives sins through the clergy. So this is something we see in the scriptures and in the patristics because confession was something communal. It was done publicly. Penance was uh, public, but confession was directed to the clergyman who gave absolution, even if there are other people there. So this still exists in orthodoxy, the fact that, you know, you're whispering the priest here in front of everyone. We still have uh, aspects of this communal aspect, though it's very much been changed in spirit, in, in all honesty. Um, for example, St. John Christum is one of the big influences to get rid of this very public nature of uh, confession and penance, but it is something we see in earlier saints, for example. So the indulgence makes sense within that context where there's other people there and or other people that you know, or you know someone who knows someone, and they could at least vouch for you to the bishop. And let's just be honest, that still exists today for all sorts of things, right? I mean, that's just reality with people vouching for people. So that's the earliest practice and in its scriptural basis. 
The Roman Catholic practice has nothing to do with that. It has absolutely no scriptural basis. And I don't say that to be mean. You see, people will quote 1 Corinthians 3 and they'll infer purgatory, though none of the fathers infer purgatory for 1 Corinthians 3. Or I forget, I think it's in Isaiah or Zechariah. Anything where it talks about people being purified from sins, they will infer purgatory. Uh, but it's just not there. No one and you kind of need purgatory to even have Roman Catholic indulgences. Um, the idea that they're going to be merits transferred from the saints to yourself, and that's the basis of which you're right with God um, for the temporary or temporal consequences of sin. They have a very specific definition. It's just something that you cannot gather from the scriptures or from early tradition because it's completely absent from both. There is one interesting passage in Colossians chapter 1 where St. Paul writes that he may he completes what is lacking in Christ's sacrifice or in Christ's sufferings, if I remember right. And so someone could very eisegetically interpret that passage to mean, well, that means, right, uh, Christ uh, deals with the eternal consequences with his sacrifice, but the saints like St. Paul could deal with the temporal because he, he, he completes what is lacking there. Right, though, clearly that's not what he's addressing, not the context of the statement. It's just something like, you know, but at least logically you could say that that works. Yeah. Um, the Orthodox indulgences are, I mean, for as for the scriptural basis, again, return to church discipline, like we see in like Matthew chapter 18. You think you take things to the church and then you know, the two to three witnesses, and, you know, if not that, then to the church, and then the church decides matters. And so the church did decide matters, and these councils saying, all right, well, we can't have every patriarch overruling every other patriarch, and we can't have bishops um, having the final say, and no one could appeal above the bishop to the patriarch. And so they made this system, right, and this system of essentially appeals for discipline. Um, another aspect of Orthodox indulgence, which is scriptural and this is where uh you guys will help me a lot because i only know this from reading books i you know i have not spent time in the balkans is the fact that james chapter 5 talks about confessing sins to one another and how the priests forgive sins and something that you'll read and something i've heard about is that for example in greece you could find a monastic who is not a priest he cannot give you absolution but he could give you a penance he could hear your confession give you penance and then you go to the priest for absolution and so, in a sense, the Orthodox indulgence kind of presumes upon where you could confess to your spiritual father. He might just be a holy ascetic, but not a priest. He does not grant you absolution. And you didn't pay your salt tax. So your local bishop, who's the local ethnarch, is not going to, he's not, he's excommunicating you for not paying your taxes. So now your spiritual father could say, well, you could go to the patriarch with my blessing, or you could go to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, and then they could absolve you. And so, like, within that system, it makes sense. But it, I'm Russian Orthodox. It's kind of bizarre. You just confess to your local priest. <laughs> we have spiritual fathers, and you might confess to them less frequently. But absolution is always given to the person you confess to. I'm not aware in the Russian tradition just going to a holy ascetic that is um, not, a, not also a priest that could grant you absolution. I'm not sure how common that is, by the way, within Greece in the modern day. Um, but it's something, for example, that you do read historical sources that did exist. So maybe you guys could comment on that. Um, so it it can still happen nowadays. For example, you tell your priest, hey, I'm going to visit this monastery soon. 
and I'm gonna spend there maybe a weekend or a week or maybe even two to three weeks. And then you meet one monastic, maybe an elder, and you will confess to him and he will give you a penance. He will tell you, you, you should do fasting this and this way and you should watch out that you do your prayers every day and also these prayers that will help you overcome your uh, spiritual battles and that will help your soul. And then you do everything he says. Then you go again to your priest or maybe of the for, to the priest of the of the monastery and before communion you will of course confess again your sins to him and after that you can take communion so that still uh, occurs nowadays as well because you mentioned a great point uh, uh, asceticism and sometimes we confuse asceticism that i wanted to mention not only monks uh, practice asceticism also we lay people can practice asceticism without being tonsured a monk because asceticism the biggest part of it is uh, the fasting the prayers and uh, trying to get away from the world so if you can try always try to strive to be as ascetic as possible it's a very difficult battle so don't go uh, out of a board with it completely directly into it but orthodoxy is like step by step we have to get uh bigger and stronger with our soul and body every day yeah it's it's interesting you bring that up and this is why those who really even they could be russian orthodox and just not really know about this the orthodox eldritch doesn't make sense until you could see it within that context hmm. that Right. Like, you know, you could have some local beef, the local bishop, and that's why you, you can't commune. And it's it's totally business related, but that is prevent you from confessing and being under obedience and then getting absolution by essentially appealing matters. You know, it's it's worth saying, like we see this, like I said, broadly in James chapter five, because that was a question. But like in church history, we have examples of good and bad people, you know, going around the discipline of the local bishop and entering communion with a foreign bishop. So we have Apiaris in North Africa. We had Origen did this, by the way. We have those who resisted the Hinaticum. Uh, so there's there's several examples of people doing this. And so this the Orthodox indulgence really does have a basis in patristics and in the scriptures. It just, two things, it formalized the matter. By the way, it Canonically, they can't do it for money. Of course, they did take money for them, uh, but <laughs> canonically, it's not supposed to have money. And uh, the other thing is, there were Roman Catholic missionaries who were selling indulgences, and normal people like it. It just sounds attractive to the the normal uneducated schmuck. Like, oh, you know, I, you know, I could have sins forgiven if I buy this thing. And so, I think part of the reason they even called it indulgences because it was good marketing. Right, you call it what the other people are calling it. They're selling it, so people are more likely to want yours. You know, if you you call it something uh, like different or absolution certificate, it just sounds too technical. So, it's I think that's another issue that people overlook. Uh, one thing I was going to bring up, I had two actually. Um, the first one is why Jerusalem? Because I I remember you said the patriarch of Jerusalem. Why did they pick Jerusalem? Was there some historical context behind it, or just? That's the first one. So if you could answer that one. That's a good question. Practicality. 
which same reason why Constantinople became, uh, you know, the second of all seeds behind Rome. And now that Rome's in schism, they're the first, right? It's not that Constantinople had any real <laughs> basis in relics. No, no apostle died in, uh, in Constantinople um, or, and no one, um, you know, and there was no patristic basis for it. They even had to move relics there. They, they moved, if I remember right, I'm uh, trying to get the right apostle here. Um, not only they moved St. Andrew, they moved um, relics, I think, of St. John, if I remember right. I, I have to look at my notes. So they made a basis that way, but there really wasn't a basis. It was just practical. And the people of God do make practical arrangements, right? We, we come with jurisdictional borders. We agree to changes in jurisdictional borders. Um, and I think when the people of God allow these things, it just, the church allows these things for disciplinary reasons, that we could change things according to what the world, people in the world need. And so let's take this to indulgences. Jerusalem, why Jerusalem and not Constantinople? The reason why is Jerusalem was the key place of pilgrimage. Uh, for regular people. Like these days, it seems like everyone, their mother goes to Athos. But I think back then you only went there if you were like going to be a monk. You know, I'm not sure how many how many people went to Athos that were just like, oh, I'm going to spend two weeks there. But a lot of people would go to Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem was this cent central part of pilgrimage. And so it was the one play. And also Jerusalem doesn't, e even to this day, it's not a very large Orthodox community relative of, let's say, the Greeks, for example. You know, yeah. so they have maybe about 100,000 or so. I, I can't remember the number, but they're small compared to the Antiochians, small compared to the Greeks, definitely compared to Russians, Bulgarians, et cetera. Right? What you find so, actually is abroad and a lot of Antiochian churches, a lot of people that would technically be under their Jerusalem jurisdiction go to Antiochian churches anyways. Oh, okay. So very often, like I, I have been to a few Antiochian churches in Australia and mm -hmm. all of the, the uh, like people that are under Jerusalem just attending Antiochian parishes. Why? Because there's just not enough of their own uh, exarchate set up. Or, so I don't know if that's even the right word. There's not enough of their parishes set up abroad. So they just go with whatever which is usually Antiochian because they get along more culturally with them. And I mean, the example you even bring that up shows for practical purposes, the sort of strict guidelines where, you know, each region has its own bishop. There's no inter overlapping bishops. It shows you in the modern day, we, we're letting kind of these practical things, you know, overtake matters. And when this will become kinetically formalized, who knows, or whether it should be is a whole other question. Uh, but it shows you, you know, these things exist. But Jerusalem, again, was this, they weren't a big enough, strong enough player where like Constantinople had anything to worry about from Jerusalem or Bulgaria or Russia or anything, but everyone had in common that they wanted to go there. And so it was the perfect place for a patriarch to enter you to his yeah. local communion. And by the, in a real sense, because Constantinople controlled like half the Russian Orthodox, or half, the, well, half the Orthodox world, and, and the Russian Orthodox didn't have a patriarch, right? So they're, they've been really cut to size after the 1720s. So kind of give this up to Jerusalem really shows you the very 
the very strong desire not to have chaos, right? Because if each patriarch could overrule each every other patriarch, you just have chaos in the giving of indulgences. And they, they didn't want that. So everyone wanted to go to Jerusalem, and it was good for church order, and they settled upon that. Um, I heard one person say that you could still technically get an adult Jerusalem today, but I don't know how true that is. Um, but it, it would make sense because actually that's been canonically, or at least in a conciliar fashion, they didn't call it a canon, formalized in a decree in 1727. Okay, well, that was a comprehensive answer. Thank you. Uh, the second question I was going to ask is, I know that there was a history in the Greek church, I think you even mentioned this at the start, between the 16th and 18th century, where they were like freely giving out absolution certificates. When it, which in Okay, uh, but we had two councils, 1727 and then one in the 19th century. And they explicitly kind of make that distinction where the the set the first of the first one the seventeen twenty seven one says that um, any any patriarch can give this certificate. It's not just one for the Roman plaintiff, uh, because they say in their wording paraphrasing here, it's a plain lie that only the Roman plaintiff can give out indulgences. That's that council. Then when you have the second one, it seems to me like it was common enough that they had to condemn it. They said that they completely condemn the practice of taking money in exchange for indulgences. That is a horrid, uh, they use pretty strong language to condemn it. So to what extent would you say that they were actually taking money for indulgences? Obviously, it's a, um, it's an abuse of, of what an indulgence is. But I know that the Greeks were heavily influenced by Western Christianity during that period of time. Would you say, um, yeah, how, how wide was it spread and, and why were they doing it? That, that's that's a, a good question. The indulgences, like, let me quote Sithius. He said, whoever gives aspra, that's money, gets indulgences. Whoever does not should never get one, even if they are available. <laughs> so, um, and then that's the Jerusalem page shark. And, and just to clarify your question, does force me to clarify all the patriarchs had given indulgence but only the jerusalem patriarch could let's say give a given indulgence if your local patriarch refused to give it to you right that that was his right he had like the inter-patriarchal privilege to give an indulgence but you could go to your local patriarch for an indulgence um that is something the council in 1727 did say but both the 1727 council and the 1838 council um did ban um the giving of money um in the 1727 council, it just it says it more vaguely, not in the measure of the Latins through which develops a measurable license in misuse, right? So it kind of applies, you can't do money. But um, in 1838, they call it the horrid and unheard of evil usage originating arrogance by which the bishops of Rome employed the most ho holy, most sacred, most awesome articles of belief of the sacred Christian faith as a means to raise money, right? So it actually explicitly condemns raising money like the Roman Catholics, though that's implied in 1727. But they all did it. And it's sort of like if this is where people that don't know how to read history, like this is where they can't make sense of these things. So like we have tons of condemnations of simony in church history, but yet there was simony throughout church history. So that's kind of the deal with indulgences. The indulgences aren't supposed to be for money, but yet they took money. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised that the people that were part of the councils condemning the exchange of money also sold their indulgences for money. So like 
it's one of those reason it's one of those ways in which the bishops involved work right on doctrine but they're corrupt and that that exists right we can have people that are intellectually correct but financially corrupt it's not like that doesn't defy the laws of physics here and so that's something that does exist now but i think that's what has largely taken the wind out of the sails of indulgence in the modern day is just be, it, that sort of um i don't know transparent hypocrisy it seemed to be more tolerated in the past than today people now want to be a little, a little more you know keep that sort of hypocrisy in the closet i will say this though an orthodox indulgence wasn't terribly expensive uh, i don't have the exact money but i remember reading one of these articles from uh, Crusades, and long story short like it was something like three weeks pay could buy an indulgence. So like if you were going on vacation or pilgrimage, so to say, to Jerusalem, that was would have been the least of your expenses in all honesty. So it's like they weren't terribly expensive. Um, so they raised money, but they really were not like, that wasn't the biggest aspect of them. And that's why I guess they were more easily able to condemn it because like they took money because they could and then they didn't take an unbelievable amount. And that, and on a normal person's salary, by the way. Because I know they used to print certificates, certificates of indulgences, and I can easily see how someone could be like, it doesn't even have to be a priest or a bishop. You could just be a normal lay person and be like, hey, I've got this certificate. Do you want to buy it from me? It's like hundred bucks. It doesn't see, it's not something that has to be confined to just a bishop. Um, mm. I found it interesting that they would print these uh, certificates, to be honest with you, in physical form. Yep. But I think moving on from that, what I want to ask is, do what did the, the so, okay, so does an indulgence absolve you from sin entirely? What What is it doing? How? Good question. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, the, the indulgence all does is say you're absolved from sin if you're doing your penance or have completed penance. So it's sort of like, why, why are you saying the obvious? Like, <laughs> you're, I'm paying money for something that I already know. If I do my penance <laughs> or complete my penance, I'm forgiven a sense. Um, this is specific, and we have a recording of one of these indulgences from Dositheus. And he says, for example, if at various times being human, he or she has been pierced through with other sins and has confessed these sins to his slash her spiritual fathers and has accepted with all his slash her heart, the penance imposed by them and has eagerly sought to fulfill it, therefore we absolve him or her, right? So like, it's sort of like you're paying money for something that you would have got already, right? If you've fulfilled your penance. So the question is why? And again, it's in the conciliar definition, um, but in short, it's just, it puts on paper for practical purposes, the fact that you're in communion because people needed that to conduct business so like uh, the fur traders, the fur guild didn't pay the people upstairs and their ethnarch. And so they weren't given indulgence until they essentially start paying their taxes again. And so they couldn't get absolution because they were excommunicated. But presuming they were otherwise faithful Orthodox Christians, they were doing the fast and they were going to services and, and observing the holidays, then there should have been no reason why they shouldn't have absolution. This is more the reason, by the way, that people would seek absolution from multiple patriarchs, if at all possible. Because that just gave you more coverage wherever you went to conduct business, that you're essentially in good standing. And which is strange. We, we don't think of these days that like, 
you could lose your religious standing due to your business practices. But during the Ottoman yoke, the the bishops were ethnarchs, and so they were very much tied into things like tax collecting. That's um, that's very interesting to think about because when I was reading on this topic, it would say, "Oh no, the certificates absolve you from sin," just like that. And obviously, we know that's not the case, like you just established. So I feel like yeah. It's just a to clarify, if you don't mind interrupting, because a lot of people read it's like a short snippet. And it's from ortho. It's from orthochristian.com, and it's also an Orthodox wiki. And that's what most people. I'm not saying you saw it there, but a lot of people see that one little quote. I did. I did actually. Um, yeah. Okay, <laughs> but like again, like when you read the fuller indulgence, you you see like no, that's not how it works. <laughs> <laughs> um. What? Um. Okay. Well, as we were saying, Craig, I was gonna ask. Um, what what is alms giving then? How does it differ from indulgences? When I give alms in the church, what is that? What's the difference? I mean, that's a great question. It's fascinating, actually, just scripturally, what they thought of alms. And um, I'm gonna try to look at some of my uh, notes here, because, like, for example, to those who, let's say, Protestant persuasion. Our view of alms seems superstitious. Oh, you give money, you get forgiven sins, or God has uh, views even more favor. And the short answer is, well, yes. <laughs> well, how does that work? Well, like uh, Jesus says, don't lay up your riches where you know uh, where they could rust and moth could destroy, but lay them up in heaven. And we see this in the hagiographies. There's a, a beautiful story about Saint Matthew in Kerala, India. And he's put in the, you know, he's put in the position of like the print, local prince, like build me this mansion, and you know, and uh, what do they call it? I'll give you all my money. All right. So he takes his money. I'll build you a mansion. All right. And then he finds out that St. Matthew's giving all the money to the poor, and so the prince wants an account. Like, where's my mansion? I gave you money to build me mansions. Like. You're seeing it with all the beggars. I'm building your mansion in heaven. And so the, the prince repents and becomes a Christian. And so it's part of early tradition. And like, again, I just quoted Jesus Christ himself saying the lay up her riches in heaven. It's a kind of like obvious thing. But the idea where you could give alms and, for example, they could help someone else is something that makes no sense in Protestantism. But consider this, like in Luke chapter seven, it, they they speak of uh, these Jew the, these Jews that go to Jesus and they're looking for him to heal someone that's a Gentile and he's, they and it says they begged him earnestly, saying that the one of whom he should do this was deserving for he loves our nation has built us a synagogue, right? So the basis for Christ healing uh, this Gentile's family member was because he had uh, given alms to the Jews, and then the Jews come and they and they ask on his behalf. And uh, we have in Acts chapter 10, where Cornelius explicitly says in Acts chapter 10, that his prayers and alms have come before God in heaven, right? And that's the basis of then God showing mercy to him, is his prayers and his, and his alms. And a weird thing is like alms are considered like this accessory to prayer in the scriptures and in early tradition. And it's sort of like you putting your money where your mouth is sort of deal. Mm -hmm. And so 
That being said, we could see the basis where we could give alms for someone else, right? And we could give alms for ourselves. And we could see, well, the benefit of giving someone else is because then people pray for us and that saves us. And that's like the saints, right, that, that pray for us. And we see that like uh, the Jews asking Christ in, in Luke chapter 7 to help heal someone. That it's the same reason we pray the saints is because they inquire of God for him to do his magic, uh, so to say. Now, so hence, like, alms, there even gets more specific in some, some elements of Jewish tradition, which are, are in our Deuterocanon, like in Tabit, where it just flat out says that alms, you know, uh, absolve sins, you know, <laughs> and so they, it just puts it very plainly. But it's all the same idea. We all see the same language about laying up riches in heaven. It's not, Christ wasn't original. He was paraphrasing what was in Jesus' Sirach and in Tabit. So um, this stuff is throughout the scriptures and early tradition, and it's honestly something we should heed more. Uh, I like something Father Daniel Sazoy said, only because it's so practical uh, that like you should be looking for opportunities to give alms, right? You, just like you look for opportunities to invest, you know, like or opportunities for a better job, you should be looking for opportunities where to give money. Oh wait, they're they're starting a new monastery. Boy, would I love to be one of the founders of that church and be in their prayers as long as that monastery exists, right? Oh, oh, wow, there's a new mission church somewhere, or there's a, you know, I'd love to be one of the founders of that church so that way I'm in their prayers even after I'm dead because God willing that mission will prevail, right? Like we should be looking for those opportunities to give alms because they have a real tangible effect. And again, it's, that comes straight from the mouth of the Lord who talks about this. But it, again, tradition is very specific about this as well. Mm. And also for the viewers, uh, arms are not always strictly money. There are sometimes like, uh, let's say for the church, so specific supplies, let's say for your priest, uh, a cross, you know, that he's using during service or... Maybe you go to a monastery, you provide them with uh, more essential stuff like clothes or maybe with grain or something else that they can need that uh, would also be considered to them alms, anything that can help. And often, uh, very even once I heard a uh, priest say, even if you, when they are like, uh, I need to think for that word. Let's say something happens in the world something catastrophic and they're collecting money to help those people and you're giving arms to the church so they can give money to those people that's still in the same concept of things it was pretty badly explained i'm a, i apologize for my bad english today <laughs> it's pretty late for i mean me. in short all all good works are efficacious towards the salvation um they're, they're not the basis for our salvation, but they're efficacious for salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.10 speaks of how we'll be judged according to the works done in our body, right? And we'll, and we'll be rewarded um, or condemned respectively for those, for those things. And so money, providing food, even a cool cup of water, apparently, um, all these things are things God takes into account. But it's all good. It's just all good works, right? The, the time to keep your mouth shut when you're offended or something like, you know, again, all, all good works. And just like every idle word will go unpunished as well. All bad things are the opposite of efficacious towards it. They're detrimental to our salvation. And so um, in some respects, though, alms is held in the highest regard. Uh, 
beyond all of the good works. Mm. Um, St. Augustine is very specific about this, for example. And it's probably because when push comes to shove, I think money is a real litmus test for like what people really believe, right? Like you could say, I think the Yankees are going to win the World Series or, you know, or Manchester United is going to win the big soccer game or whatever sport you're into. But if you're gambling money that they're going to win, that kind of really shows you really think they're going to win. Um, so alms, because as that financial element and for with our uh, fallen uh, human tropos, uh, we really operate based upon really financial incentive that it's, it does have a special place um, in tradition as being really the, the most important work one could do. Um, I'm not going to say that means then you could go do whatever you want. Um, St. Seraphim Sarah, for example, says, you know, you acquire the Holy Spirit and it might be by giving alms, it might be by fasting, it might be by whatever. So it's different for all for different people, but alms do have a special place um, in the saints. So having been really particularly important um, for us to exercise our faith and to attain to salvation. Yeah, well, another thing is uh, with regards to penances, uh, what people will do is before they, uh, if someone might have an issue with the whole, the whole notion of indulgence and the ideology behind it, they actually would just go nip it in the butt and go for penances. They'll say, oh, how is penances biblical? Uh, I've seen this multiple times when I'm dealing with some Protestants. They'll go, penances aren't biblical before they even get, because okay, just some context, when Martin Luther put his thesis on the wall of that Catholic church, um, it listed indulgences as one of the issues he was seeing with the church and that he, he was saying was not biblical but before that what they'll do is they'll argue against penances so that they can disprove indulgences but you're kind of chucking the baby out with the bathwater here of course taking money in exchange for an indulgence is uh, is not biblical you could argue this but why penances you see it in the church of corinth with saint paul he he says put away that man from you who has done in corinthians 1 Put away he who has done evil from you. And then in the second Corinthians, you see, bring him back into your fold and forgive him. So I've paraphrased here, but uh, could you elaborate on penances? Where does that come from? For yeah, that's a, yeah, that's exactly the passage I was thinking of in First Corinthians 5, if I remember right. Um, that, yeah, all penance is, is repenting of sin. <laughs> that's all over the Bible. So, of course... There's repentance. Um, when we call it penance, it's the same thing. It's just penance is a little more strategic in a way. It's meant to correct the behavior. So, like, obviously, for the man sleeping with his stepmother, in uh, mentioned in First and Second Corinthians, the penance was stop sleeping with your stepmother, <laughs> right? Like, you know, that's a a pretty obvious penance. You know, um, to be back in community, you ought to stop doing that. But, you know, penances could be other things. They're supposed to help one attain mastery over sin. And I think, to be honest, we either don't have penance anymore. I mean, I, it's like I, I don't know if people even get penances for terrible things anymore. So, like, that's, that's something you don't see nearly enough. Um, or, like, you know, people are used to it in movies. Like, the penance is just something like, uh, I don't know, you do multiple prostrations or something like that. And 
what we have to be thinking of, the point of the penance is to help inform our repentance so we can actually correct the behavior, so we can overcome the sin. That's the point of the penance. And so the base of that is repentance. It has to do with spiritual fathers. And that's why St. Paul calls himself a spiritual father to the Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, the basis, though, for like uh, corrective penances, on the top of my head, this is something where I'd have to maybe write in the com box, go, oh, I just thought of the passage. But it's not something I could think of offhand. It's, I just think it's, we see it in the scripture's teachings on repentance and what we see in sacred tradition, which harmonizes with scripture, is that the penance is made to correct the behavior. In early church tradition, it was public. Um, now, we have an example of this, actually. I forget if it's Acts chapter 17 or 18, but it speaks of those with their um, like sorcery books, that they light the books on fire in order then to like uh, become Christians, and it was done before the apostles. And so this is an example of a, of a public sort of repentance, and it was done in order to get in good standing with those who were bishops, and they're the apostles. And so public repentance is something in the scriptures, and that's an example, and it's something ubiquitous in early tradition. And so public repentance had these visible forms of repentance or penance uh, so people could see that that's what they need help with or that's what they need prayer for. So like those guilty of adultery couldn't stand in the church and they had to stand to the outside or whatever. So everyone would know, well, then, you know, Frank was sleeping around sort of deal. Um, we don't have that anymore. So you actually now have a set of these public humiliations as a way of correcting behavior, which makes sense in a Near Eastern context where everything is honor and saving face. Um, now we have these like private humiliations, which are meant to correct the behavior. Um, which again is kind of comm uh, commensurate with, as I was alluding to before, this kind of walking away from the spirit of early repentance and, and early confession, which was much more public. We have the facade of it these days and we have, uh, you know, because we still do it in front of people, but it's very different in spirit. Um, and to be honest, in the context we have now, it's, I don't know if we would be able to bring it back without doing some weird cult-like behavior, which is probably why it went away. It worked in a smaller context before nations of people were converted in mass to Christianity. Yeah, mm. yeah definitely. And um, <clears throat> I also thought of one example of uh, penance. Let's say we confess something about uh, our behavior that is not in the way of orthodoxy like ex like excessive uh, gossiping and anger and and fighting with our maybe loved ones or friends then maybe the priest or the monk or somebody will give us uh, a penance for example fasting for two weeks because when we fast we go a bit outside of the world and talk less and focus more on the on our spiritual well-being so we can heal again then we take communion and after that we have more the strength to battle against future battles and we overcome uh, hopefully that sin yeah a lot of the point of uh, fasting or pro like let's say with fasting is if you can control what you put in your stomach mm -hmm. you should be able to control what comes out of your mouth if you 
And so like an importance of prostrations is that we're, it's a psychosomatic action. So it informs our prayer. And so if let's say we're distracted in prayer or something, you know, or we're not praying earnestly enough to overcome sin and prostrations could help with that. But I think it's, at least in the Western context, I can't say how it feels for you guys. For a lot of people, it almost becomes, all right, I, you know, I've done my 10 prostrations, so I'm fine. You know, right? I don't have to worry about anything anymore. And in the end, all the, the priest could do is, is prescribe to you a medicine, right? Just like with medicines, you got to take them on empty stomachs and you have to maybe fast the night before or whatever, same thing with penance. You have to do it right. If you don't do it right, you know, he'll grant you absolution, but you're not going to attain to the same spiritual benefit. You you have to cooperate with the grace of God in order to attain to the fullness of that grace. Something I was going to ask was with regards to purgatory um, and our notion of it. It might be a bit of a tangent. Look, just I knew that indulgence is a time of purgatory, just to put it really basic, really blandly. Yeah. Um, with regards to that, uh, how I know that an argument I often hear is that purgatory is a third place, therefore we don't believe in purgatory. But where, where can I find a source where they say that purgatory is a third place? It's a complete tangent, just came to my mind now um i do yeah it's i don't think there's a roman catholic source that's dogmatically binding because remember like just because you find it even in a saint's writings or what a pope says they'll they'll do these mental gymnastics they know somehow not dogmatic but it's it's in any by any stretch of imagination a valid inference because just ask a roman catholic is someone in purgatory in heaven no is someone in purgatory in hell no so, so it's got to be a third place. You know, it's, it's a valid inference if you get no to both those questions. While you ask about the Orthodox afterlife, um, is someone who is being prayed out of Hades, is he in Hades or is he in heaven? No, he's, well, he's obviously he's, he's in Hades, right? So like we have a binary that makes sense. Um, it's perhaps for some practical intents and purposes, something similar. But it's definitely not a third place. Um, that's why in the third kneeling prayers in Pentecost, we pray for those that are in Hades. Because we actually believe, according to our tradition, that there are those in Hades that will not always be in Hades. In the Confession of Decithius, I forget which decree gives this. But it says that those who are in Hades that are benefiting from prayers that have died with repentance um, are, are aware of their future release. So, again, if you could say, well, people in purgatory know they won't be there forever, so they have that in common. But the difference is those people are in Hades. They're, they're, they're not in heaven. Um, and then you could get into all sorts of esoteric directions with this. Because, like, for example, does everyone in Hades suffer, right? Like um, the unbaptized or something like that. Like, and the answer would be absolutely not. We have saints that say absolutely not. They don't suffer. And so, like... That would mean that means that everyone in Hades objectively suffers, you know, but they don't have, but they're suffering from not attaining to the fullness of the grace of God in heaven. So that's where I just would like, I personally go, listen, I could, I could tell you what the saints say and what the logical ramifications of that are. I'm not, I don't pretend to be the strongest theological thinker, but something to think about.
Uh, I recall reading on your your own article, actually, where you said indulgences are only contractually effective when the penances have been uh, complete. So for those watching, when you get that certificate, let's say you even got a certificate of indulgence, it doesn't mean that the certificate is absorbing of your sins. You've got to finish what's in the clauses, which is penance. If you've not done the penance, you've not got an absolvement from sin. An indulgence is just a kind of a recommendation. Someone's saying, okay, on my recommendation, maybe less than the penance or whatever it is, but you've still got to fulfill the penance that's on the certificate or on whatever the spiritual father or priest or a bishop has told you to do. That's what makes the indulgence absolve your sins, not the piece of paper. So don't commit that fallacy. Uh, you see this also? Yes, like unlike, unlike the Roman Catholic indulgence, which transfers merit, right? Where it will have a tangible effect on the temporal effects of sins, how much you will suffer in the afterlife. And so it's, one is, like I said, it's, they serve very different purposes. Now, Roman Catholics will rightly say, well, you need real contrition and stuff for a Roman Catholic indulgence to be efficacious. And we understand that. But the thing is, why will some of the same contrition have varying effects with depending on the indulgence. There's some plenary indulgences and there's indulgences that are more limited. But the person who has genuine contrition, um, he doesn't benefit equally, right? If he has equal amount of general, uh, equal amount of contrition, he benefits as much as arbitrarily the church decides, the Roman Catholic Church. And so, like you said, it's very, very different. Um. I, I remember reading a story about St. Nicodemus in an indulgence, and I've seen it used polemically, where people will polemically say, oh, I know he paid for a certificate, um, so you paid for indulgence. How would you yeah. rebut that? What would you say? Well, yeah, he, he paid for an indulgence or indulgences even for people he knew, not for himself specifically, if I remember right. Um, though I think if he bought one for himself or if I'm just getting the story wrong, um, it would have not been um, strange. It could have been just simply like giving alms, right? Like there's a person giving indulgences and he was just giving alms because he wasn't excommunicated from anyone. The the Greek indulgences, right? He wasn't dead yet, so he wasn't purchasing one saying that, you know, uh, may God have mercy on me after I'm dead, which is what the the, the Greek and Russian indulgences uh, was more popular in Russia for the dead would would say. And for living, he would have to be excommunicated. So if he even purchased one for himself, it was just simply a, just like essentially given alm. And it was just nice to have this piece of paper. Um, from what I could tell, and again, there's limited resources in the English language in the firm Cressidus. Um, from what I could tell, it's, it was more uh, important for people in business, people that were doing business and things that the church had a hand in regulating and the uh as ethnarchs and so i don't i if i remember the story right though he was buying them for other people but it yes they so probably weren't excommunicated either i'm gonna i'm guessing unless unless you know it's possible they could have been people that helps you know fund some of his publishing those work two. and they might have been in business works communicated i can't remember so there's two issues that you said so the person he was buying it for was actually called nicodemus as well a living monastic oh. called Nicodemus. And people oh, that have oh. a very baseline reading of it try and say, oh, no, it's for himself. But no, he's buying it for another monastic. That's the first thing. Just for you guys watching, if you ever encounter this argumentation, 
The second thing also is that when he's paying money to purchase the certificate, he's paying for the delivery, the printing and sending it to the person. So not every single time you hear the word money doesn't mean that they're paying money for the actual absolvement of sins. No, he's paying for the delivery and printing of the certificate so he can give it to this other monastic called Nicodemus. I just thought it was interesting to put that in there because I've heard it enough times that I you know, kind of got on my nerves and I thought I'd bring it up now. Uh, and, I, and I think it's worth bringing up, like, again, this is all reading motives, but I can't say reading history, I'd be very surprised. Just like when you, like a book has a high amount of shipping and handling and the publisher makes money on the shipping and handling. They go, well, technically we can't charge money for the indulgence, but like you said, the paper costs money and the ink costs money and, yeah. <laughs> and the press costs, right? And then, oh, and we don't want to lose money on, so we'll make it a little, you know, and but that's why I even said in the beginning that an Orthodox indulgence was an earth shattering amount of money. And so that's why the monetary aspect, though I think it was real, um, it wasn't, it didn't play the same role as it did in Roman Catholicism. And they, they did, they very much were, um, explicit about that when they spoke of orthodox indulgences okay well i think uh last thing we're going to end last question and then i'm going to get you to recommend a book or something uh can you tell me do any of the protestant mainline churches have a similar concept of indulgences did martin luther does this tradition of indulgences or penances translate in any way whatsoever into any of the protestant mainline churches that's my question to your knowledge I mean, not that I'm aware of, because really only the apostolic churches really do confession. Confession sort of exists, like you know, te technically like the Lutheran Missouri Synod has an order for confession, but no one does it, you know? And so, and so how do you even have penance when there's confession? Another thing, when there's no confession, another thing is among the Protestants, no one ever gets excommunicated. Like who's ever excommunicated and you know, or exacted church discipline. So how do you have penance if there's no church discipline? You know, if you get into some argument with the pastor of uh, whatever Baptist church, you just go down the street to the next Baptist church, or you convert to Presbyterianism or whatever. So it's how do you have that within that? They're, they have ecclesiology that just doesn't make sense of Matthew chapter 18, where there is church discipline. Um, is there any recommended readings that you have on indulgences and on this topic, any source? It doesn't have to be a book, anything. Yeah, it's there's a couple articles people can find online. It's all I've been able to find. Uh, a uh, priest in the um, Alexandrine Patriarchate um, turned me onto this. Uh, Nikolos uh, Krasidis, Between Forgiveness and Indulgence, Funerary Prayers of Absolution in Russia. And a cartel that lasts for centuries, the case of the Eastern Orthodox Church indulgences. Um, uh, Chrysidius is a bit uh, sensational. It is a, it is a sensational topic. Uh, so just expect that when reading it. But if you actually just read what he translates and stuff, it pretty much comes out everything what we're talking about here. All right, well, there you go, guys. We have talked about orthodox indulgences, how they fit into our framework. Um, hopefully, you've got a better understanding of what they are, how we interpret it, and how we apply it in our tradition uh, and in the church. And 
Uh, I want to say a big thank you to Craig for coming on. Uh, always a pleasure to have you on, and I'm glad that you agreed to come this season. Um, well, it's it's great to be on, and I'm appreciative you allowed me to do this dry topic. I wanted to do something that was done nowhere before um, on anyone's channel, <laughs> and it's uh, I, who better than the Orthodox Squad? That way, they could people have to go to Orthodox Squad in order to get this content here. Um, but I think like this serves several purposes for those who are Protestants, they get to see a little bit more how our soteriology works and how our ecclesiology works for Roman Catholics. It takes away that they could equate their errors as if we have the same errors because we don't. Um, our indulgences are very different. And I think for Orthodox, it, it helps us kind of situate how in a different time and place we applied biblical and patristic uh, understandings to a very specific situation. And um, like the office of deaconess, it's fell, fallen into disuse. You don't really have indulgences anymore, but we still have the prayers and people still get entered into bishops, communions and stuff that still happens today. So all the same stuff still exists. It's just, we don't really attach it to documents like we did uh, until fairly recently. So uh, I really hope this is something that's blessed all different people for all different reasons. Um, and I hope so too. Thank you to our uh, viewers, of course, for watching our content. I will put all of Craig's links down in our uh, description, uh, the recommended readings. And uh, it's good to have one of our least appearing members appear again for another episode. Craig, you're still an honorary member. That's not going to get rescinded anytime soon. Um, this is the Orthodox Squad signing out. Thank you. <laughs>